Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ahmed Hassan. Today, we are talking with Kyle Cunliffe. Kyle is a, a lecturer at Salford University, and he focuses on intelligence and cyberspace, particularly where those two meet. Thank you for joining us, Kyle. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to be here. All right. So, I mean, we know each other a little bit, so, but for some interesting reason, we never really talked about like, how did you get to where you are right now <laughs> and, and what your role is within intelligence and, and, and why I'm talking to you today. So if you could tell me a little bit more about, you know, yourself, your, how do you got into this? And yeah, yeah sure. I mean, <laughs> it's a long story because my story started what back in. 2007 when I first started my degree. I mean, I know I'm supposed to probably say some like really inspiring story, but my <laughs> uncle was in MI6 or something like that. But no, the truth is I used to be a gamer and I remember when I was a kid, I played the crap out of a game called GoldenEye on the Nintendo 64. And it really annoyed me that being at the time a sort of fat working class kid from the Northwest of England, that I could never be James Bond. So, when I started getting into politics and I first started wanting to do a degree, I saw this course in international politics and intelligence studies at uh, Aberystwyth University, little Welsh town in the middle of nowhere. And as soon as I saw that, I just thought, you know what, sod it, I'm going to actually try this. And I did. And I went and did the degree and it was the most boring experience of my life. I, I actually really disliked it. And part of the reason for that was because... When you do a degree with sort of intelligence as a side, what you're really studying is politics. You're studying international relations, you're studying lots of history, and the intelligence only comes into it in a small way. And the stuff that I studied just left me so, I guess, just bored. I mean, it was a lot of theoretical stuff. It was a lot of conceptual stuff. It wasn't the stuff that really stuck out to me about what makes spying interesting, what makes it exciting. I mean, I don't know how you can take a subject that Hollywood loves to pieces and make it so boring, but somehow the course felt that way. So what changed, I guess, was my dissertation. I did a dissertation on Japanese code breaking against Imperial Japan in World War II. What was it called? The Red 25B, I think, JN25B, the Japanese cyber machine. But it was a super interesting dissertation purely because I was reading about tradecraft. I was reading about how the hell intelligence actually works in the field. And that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. And then after I finished, I went home. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with life. And I remember just deciding to read through all of the books that I bought as part of my degree and never bothered to read because, you know, students don't read. And I suddenly fell in love with Tradecraft. And it was a book called The Code Breakers by David Kahn. It's a huge tomb of a book, but it's full of technical details, practical insights, the kind of stuff that you don't tend to get in intelligence textbooks and so on. And that completely opened my mind to what actually interests me in intelligence. On the other side of that, I'm a nerd. I love cyberspace. I was always a nerd when I was a kid. I was always fascinated by hacking. I was always fascinated about what technology can do. I think the moment that really struck to me was when a friend, when I was a kid, hacked Britney Spears' website and annoyingly posted my name all over it. 
Now, today, the idea that some kid in his bedroom could hack a celebrity's website, I mean, it does happen, but it's much harder to do. But that, mm. back then, it was just like somebody proving a point. And that fascinated me. And so I wanted to kind of look at how does cyberspace impact intelligence? And I wasn't really sure what angle to go with that until I signed up to do a PhD. I originally got funding to look at the impact of ethics on the collection of intelligence using cyberspace. But then I, I became a teaching assistant in my first year for a professor called Len Scott, and he is basically the Yoda of espionage. He is an absolute fascinating person to talk to. And his module was called Espionage Studies. And it was very much Cold War grounded. And it was all about old-fashioned spying, right? recruiting and handling agents. And the, the kind of wilderness of mirrors that comes into that, the deception, the distrust, and as well as that, the tradecraft. And it was a surreal experience. At one point, I ended up teaching a seminar using, it was a guitar-playing octopus sitting on a fez. Now, whenever people ask me what the point of that was, I have to try and think really hard why the hell I was teaching a seminar using guitar-playing octopus sitting on a fez. But it worked. And what that did essentially was it made me see another side of intelligence that I fell in love with, which is human intelligence, and particularly the kind of human intelligence that goes on between states. Yeah. Mm. And after that, my interest in tradecraft, my interest in cyberspace, and my interest in spies just merged together. And that ended up becoming the basis for my PhD. And that's pretty much the basis for my research now. It's just looking at how does espionage evolve in the cyber era. So yeah, that, that sums it up, I think, mostly. That's a very interesting background and I, I really appreciate it because I think it's very good to hear from people who come at it from a like, different angle. But I think what really binds all of us in this field is most of us are students yeah. of intelligence and students of the game, Absolutely. right? So, so I think that, that sets people that are really interested in this apart from Somebody who just, you know, it's a passerby. It doesn't say that, I'm not saying that you cannot do the job if you're not, but it's just, yeah, it makes it much more interesting and enjoyable doing this, this profession. So yeah. what was your PhD about? The title was called, it was called An Existential Crisis and a Golden Opportunity. And it was a quote from, I think it was Alex Younger, the head of SIS at the time. And he was talking about the idea that technology had essentially created major problems with human intelligence. And the reason for that is because if you're, if you're an intelligence officer in the field in somewhere like Moscow or Beijing, your job is to get close to people. And the thing that stands between you and the people that you need to get close to is surveillance. It's being physically monitored everywhere you go. And the kind of numbers that people encounter with surveillance is insane in some countries. So like in the, in the Cold War, in Soviet Moscow, intelligence officers couldn't go anywhere without being followed every single place they went. I mean, the KGB hired hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people just to follow foreigners in the streets of Moscow. And even today, that problem still exists. I think the FSB is alleged to have something like 400,000 people working for it. Now, when you think about the FSB being a bit like MI5, MI5 maybe has a few thousand people working for it. So 400,000 mm -hmm. people is a huge number, and a, a huge number of that 
is devoted to following foreigners in the streets. That problem's even bigger, even bigger in China. And so what Alex Younger was talking about essentially is that, well, if that's a problem, technology is adding a whole new dimension to that because it's a damn sight easier to follow people when you've got things like smart CCTV cameras, facial recognition. When an intelligence officer arrives at an airport and they scan their finger through a biometric scanner, their identity is locked to their passport, which means mm -hmm. they can't go back under a fake identity. Now, all of these things add together to create what is essentially a surveillance nightmare for anybody trying to operate in a country like Russia and China. But the golden opportunity, I mean, that's the existential threat, but the golden mm -hmm. opportunity, which Alex Chamberlain was referring to, is the idea of using cyberspace to intelligence officers' advantage. How can we take the internet and take digital developments and use that to recruit and handle spies? And that was basically the basis for my thesis. So I was interested in, okay, there's this problem, there's this potential opportunity, but how does that pan out in hard target conditions? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, we can recruit a spy in cyberspace if they live, I don't know, in Germany, where you're not mm -hmm. so worried about internet surveillance. But when you're trying to recruit somebody in a hard target state, I mean, why would the internet not be surveilled? So it creates all kinds of challenges. So for me, it was a fascinating subject because it was about taking everything that we know can be bad about cyberspace, everything that we know can be dangerous about cyberspace, and then taking it to the extreme level. So it, mm -hmm. yeah, it was a, it was an interesting project and not a very optimistic project as well. And what were your findings? Basically the intelligence community is screwed. All right. To put, to, to put it in numbers, in the cold war, when we tried to recruit spies against Russia and China, sorry, against Russia, as far as I'm aware, we only recruited one, one spy who was recruited and handled entirely within the Soviet Union. That means every single other spy that ever existed inside the Soviet Union only existed because at some point they were allowed to travel abroad where intelligence mm -hmm. officers could safely meet them. Mm -hmm. One person. Well, Basically, today, we are looking at the same problem. Because cyberspace, as much as it opens these wonderful doors, when you're dealing with a state where self-censorship is common, where constant laws are put into place designed to control the internet, you just end up with a situation where, okay, even if there might be an opportunity, you can't trust that opportunity. I might be able to talk to somebody living in Moscow and nobody will notice, but mm -hmm. the, the, the security services have the ability to get the data that those communications would create. So I don't know whether that person, that communication with that person is exposed or not. So the safest thing is just not to have the conversation. And it's just created a system where essentially I think the intelligence community is very much handicapped. And we're going to end up becoming reliant, I think, on people again who travel, on those mm -hmm. officials that are allowed to travel abroad. But unfortunately, the vast majority of them are not. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're basically looking at a new era of what's called Moscow rules, where it's just extremely difficult to recruit the spies mm -hmm. that we really need. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting because a couple of years ago, I did a, a paper on first invasion in Ukraine, the Crimea takeover, if that was an intelligence failure. And if you look at the open source reporting around it, one of the, the problems that was being mentioned by particularly the US and, and, and also NATO intelligence was that 
how difficult it was to have sources in yeah. Moscow and, and in Russia at large and how easy it was for Russia to have spies all over the West, right? Yeah. And so there was this like asymmetry between the two powers. And that was mentioned as one of the reasons why we were caught off guard, you know, as, yeah. as, as a community. Right. I mean, I think there's, I think the internet lulls people into a false sense of security where we assume that it's equal, mm -hmm. that it doesn't get affected by borders. But it does. It's it. The experience of, of a foreigner can be completely different online to us. They might be able to access the same websites, but mm. the privacy that they have can vary wildly. And I think the the numbers that put put things into perspective for me come from. I remember there was a there was an article I think by maybe Newsweek, and it was talking about German intelligence. And German intelligence had reported. China had attempted to recruit 10,000 spies using cyberspace, mainly LinkedIn and social mm -hmm. media. And they'd been very effective. And the reason yeah. they'd been very effective is because the communications that they were sending just blended in, essentially. Now, you put that into contrast to the CIA. About two or three years ago, it was reported that between 2004 to 2010, the CIA had lost pretty much all of its top agents and all of its assets in Iran and China because its multi-billion dollar covert communication system that relied on the internet had basically screwed them all over. So all of these people were arrested and executed. So think about that. China is just trying to talk to people and recruit them to be a spy using normal social communications and mm -hmm. succeeding to a massive degree. The CIA is spending billions of dollars on a covert system, like the superest, most high-tech, advanced covert communication system the world has seen, and it doesn't stand a chance in China and Iran, and instantly its agents are arrested and executed. So the experience of using cyberspace for your operations is completely different. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're going to really struggle to get some of the high-grade intelligence that we need on Russia. But I'll tell you one interesting thing. When I was doing this research, the CIA had a warning on its website saying, attention, if you, are a, if you are a citizen of the Russian Federation, do not contact this website. Because they do have an online volunteering part of their website where people can say, I want to be a spy, here's, here's who I am. But they, they basically told Russians, don't do this. Since the invasion of Ukraine, that warning has disappeared. So I think mm. the CIA is more willing to take a chance right now because it knows it needs the sources that, mm -hmm. that it can't otherwise get. Now, that's a guess. I'm happy to say that is a guess, but I think it's an academic guess. Mm -hmm. Very interesting and worrying at the same time. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, we're not trying to sound like, you know, we are, but we are Westerners, right? So yeah. that's the perspective that we take from yeah. what's going on and, and, and and, and the state of the art right now in intelligence. But I think what I find interesting, and I, and I would love to know what you think about this, people talk about Russia and China, particularly China, that is such a information black hole, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they are not able to suppress videos of how they're dealing with COVID-19, right? where they lock people up and tanks in front of banks, right? That could be a good title for an article, by the way. And so what do you think of that? 
Right. I don't think they are information black holes. The, the thing about cyberspace is, and the internet, is that it's dramatically affected intelligence in the sense that it's led to a world where we have more information than ever before, and we have more ways to gather most of that information by ever before. And in that respect, I think intelligence has got easier. And I think that partly explains why intelligence has boomed around the world, because so many people can start to get involved with it. And there's nothing Russia and China can really do to avoid that. It will always remain extremely difficult to get at the stuff that most matters to foreign states because they will put all of their energy into protecting it. I mean, the best secrets are in somebody's mind. They're not even written down on paper. And I think I remember reading reports that claim that some countries, including Russia, were keeping their, 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 their most guarded secrets actually off paper so they couldn't be hacked. But when it comes to, to the vast majority of information that people produce, there's nothing any totalitarian state can stop do to stop that other than literally saying you cannot use the internet. I mean, North Korea is a black hole because mm -hmm. its population just don't have access, more or less, to the internet. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they exist in a completely different world to the rest mm -hmm. of the planet. That is a true hard target state. I mean, yeah. there is nothing that compares to, to North Korea. But I think with Russia and China, they've ultimately accepted the fact that if they want to make money, and they do want to make money, they have to allow their economy to thrive using the internet. And if you're going to allow your economy to thrive using the internet, you're going to have to accept that there's some things you can't control. And yeah. what is interesting to me about China is that this idea where China sort of suppresses all kind of openness or criticism of the state is it's nonsense. China yeah. does allow people to vent their spleen online. They do allow people to complain online, but there's a very crucial difference. You can complain about local level officials and accuse them of corruption, and you're even encouraged to do that. Yeah. But when you start to complain about President Xi, then you're in for a world of hurt. So yeah. it's about making sure that you control how people behave on cyberspace, but not yeah. stopping them from behaving on cyberspace. And as long as people can speak and post and communicate online, there will be information. So no, I I'm not convinced that, that, that information black holes but I'm also not convinced you're going to find the information that you most want to know there. Yeah, yeah. As a side, uh, you mentioned North Korea. There's a very interesting video. I don't know if it's still on YouTube because it, it popped up a couple of times and, and it got taken down again. But I think this is maybe 10 years ago, there was a large hacking campaign by a, a North Korean APT or Advanced Persistent it's Threat. Sony, by any chance. I think it was pre or I think it was pre Sony, but I'm not hundred percent right. sure. So they were doing this and a, a friend of mine who was investigating a botnet, they got into the C2 server of the hackers, right? And they were very poorly on their OPSEC. So, so the operational security was all over the place and they got into it and they found information that they got, that they hacked. Right? So one of the places that they hacked was the Red Cross in, in Pyongyang. And there was a video that they recovered. And I don't know how it got out, but there's a video of a guy with a GoPro cycling through the streets of Pyongyang. And he's just, and the only thing you see is just empty streets and cut down trees. That's yeah. it. Right. It's super eerie. And yeah. Check it out, guys. I don't know if you can find it online, but uh, the, the button that they were, that they, uh, I, I think at the time he was at Force Point, 
which yeah. is like Raytheon's cyber wing, but they found this huge botnet and it was super interesting to see. You know, there is a report out, so you can find it online. It was called Yako, I believe, J-A-K-O. Well, as an aside, if anybody listening is interested in that, yeah, go ahead and but find it. It, it kind of underscores the, 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 the dilemma for these states because if the people of North Korea ever had blanket access to the internet and they suddenly mm. realized that this world they've been told existed is, is nonsense, is a fantasy, mm. and that actually they're really living in a dictatorship, that their perspectives are going to change quickly. I mean, I find it fascinating how quick China was to essentially ban Google and ban every other Western website that it could because it didn't mm-hmm. want to control how people perceive their own reality. And yeah, I mean, North Korea is a fascinating place, but I'll tell you what annoys me is people who go on holiday to North Korea, like it's Jurassic <laughs> Park or something. I, I, yeah. I never quite understood that. It's like, well, I don't really want to see people suffering. <laughs> it yeah, doesn't yeah, sound yeah. exciting. I don't think you see them though, if you go <laughs> yeah, there. You see right. smiling faces and people telling you they love the region. Yeah, yeah. I think there, I mean, the, obviously there's the, the, the tragic story of, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but the American student. He wants to take a poster. Yeah. yeah. And then he eventually he died because he was tortured so badly. I think, you know, there is a heavy price for a misstep going on holiday in North Korea. So. And just to add on that, I mean, that's particularly, I tell this to my students, that's particularly true for people that want to study intelligence as well. Mm-hmm. More so. I mean, there was a case of a PhD student in intelligence who went to Iran, I believe, and ended up being arrested and accused of spying. If you do study intelligence, you have to really think carefully about where you're traveling to. I mean, my favorite case is Glenn Duffy Shriver, the guy who, American student, went to China. He recognized that he had the potential to join the CIA, so they essentially offered him a load of money and were really nice to him. He agreed to become a spy. He went back, joined the CIA, and then he cracked during his polygraph. Mm -hmm. But the CIA suddenly realized that what this means is China's targeting students who travel to recruit yeah. them and to then filter them back into the U.S. government. And if you do study intelligence, you have to think really, really carefully about where are you going to travel to and mm-hmm. how are you going to interact with people. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, you, you made the perfect segue right there. <laughs> you, you teach at an intelligence program at Salford. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So I teach a program called Intelligence Analysis, which is aimed at undergraduates. And I also teach our Masters in Intelligence and Security Studies. The the undergraduate program is quite new. The Masters, I think, is one of the very first Intelligence Masters programs to ever exist. Mm-hmm. But the undergraduate was started, the, the, the Intelligence Analysis program was started last year. And it was it was set up by my colleague, Christopher Murphy. And we, he'd looked at how intelligence is taught in universities. I mean, there are very few actual intelligence degree programs. You'll often get a course that comes with intelligence studies on the side, like history and intelligence or whatever. But very rarely do you get a degree in itself in the program. And he looked at it, and what he realized, and I fully agree with him, is that intelligence is changing, and it's changing fast. In the past, it was something that you studied from a historical perspective because yeah. we knew so little about what was going on in the contemporary world. I mean, most of what we know about intelligence comes from history books. Even the mm-hmm. culture and identities of spy agencies, we only find insights, like shreds of insights today. But most of what we know comes, you know, comes from history. 
-hmm. And so intelligence was always taught from a historical perspective. But this program is trying to modernize it and actually mm -hmm. trying to focus on, okay, how does modern intelligence work? And what do you need to do to get a job? So unlike other degrees, which are more academic in nature, this is still academic, but it's also vocational. It's about mm -hmm. getting students the skills they need to actually get jobs in intelligence analysis. Yeah. And what we did was we spoke to practitioners, we spoke to people that work in the field, and we essentially asked them, what do you want to see on the CV of somebody who is applying for your job? And so mm -hmm. we use that input then to create our modules, to create our course, so that essentially our students are well prepared. Mm -hmm. What I will add though, is that the program isn't just about sending people into organizations like MI6 and GCHQ. It's also about making sure people have unique skills that they, they can then take into the private sector, into businesses, into a lot of different sectors. Because ultimately intelligence isn't about spies. It's a way of mm -hmm. looking and processing and using information. And Absolutely. we're just teaching students how to do that in a very refined way. And it, it's, mm -hmm. it's the kind of problem you want to do if you care about how knowledge is created, you care about spying, and you, you think you have skills you can put to a very unique purpose. What I love to hear is because obviously me and you, we talked about the course that we are building and, yeah. and which is applied intelligence predominantly. And what I would like to know from you is what did the practitioners tell you that they wanted people to have or to know or to learn? Basic skills. Yeah. It's, it's the simplest of stuff. It's things like being able to prove that you know how to use Word. It's not about having the most advanced data analysis skills in the world because that can be taught later. It's about ensuring that your trainees, your entry level candidates have the basic skills that they need to do the job. It's all very well for somebody to say, oh yeah, of course I know how to use Microsoft Office because we all know how to use Microsoft mm -hmm. Office. But being able to prove it is completely different. Yeah. It's being able to get our students to think, think a little bit outside of the box to approach problems in a different way. So for example, we spoke to some practitioners about students with autism and dyslexia because we were worried mm -hmm. about essentially telling students, oh sure, you can get this job, but then them being denied. And mm -hmm. what I loved to hear was when they turned around and said, well, no, no, no. Actually, we look at students who think differently as the golden nugget, because that's mm -hmm. what our job's about. It's looking outside the box. So yeah. anybody who looks at the world in a slightly different way to everybody else is the perfect candidate for an intelligence analyst. Mm -hmm. So we're just, we're trying to focus on getting students to realize the skills that they have that they might not otherwise value. And that's yeah. kind of what we're using our practitioner input to build upon really. Mm -hmm. That's really good. No, I think because there is this obviously a tension between practitioners and, and academics, and sometimes it feels like there's a bit of a turf war right, where academics say, well, you know, you have to ground everything you teach in solid research, which makes sense. And practitioners on the other hand say, well, you cannot teach certain things in the classroom, right? These are just two separate thoughts that I've heard through the years. But what is your opinion on that? I think it's a futile debate because they're two different mm -hmm. things. A practitioner yeah. is by very definition, a per person who practices. 
-hmm. An academic generally is a PhD, which by very definition is a philosophical doctrine. Mm -hmm. So one is looking at concepts and theories and one is looking at hands-on experience. And you use those that knowledge for two very different purposes. I mean, mm -hmm. a practitioner should be training people. They should be giving people the, the skills that they need to do that very specific job. Mm -hmm. Whereas an academic should be teaching people the knowledge behind those skills. Where did those mm -hmm. skills come from? How are those skills going to develop in the, in the future? How can you use those skills differently? It's, it's looking at the wider context behind them. But if you put an academic in a room and tell somebody how to recruit a spy, they're going to flop because they don't know. They can use a history book to guess and they might make a good guess, but they mm -hmm. haven't got the hands-on experience to do that. And you can't really teach some of this stuff, as you say, mm -hmm. in a classroom. But at the same time, if you put a practitioner in a room and say, right, teach about intelligence ethics or oversight or the bigger picture, they're not necessarily going to know that stuff because it's not yeah. necessarily what they do in their day-to-day -day job. And I think as well, there's a risk there is a risk with practitioners that if you are so entrenched in doing things a certain way, you kind of fail to see how things can be done in a different way. And mm -hmm. I noticed this because I've, I've taught in three universities now, and I've taught on two programs that are designed purely for practitioners. So that is to say practitioners can study that course. Mm -hmm. And I've had two different types of input. One is that they're very much not open-minded you know, in the sense that they just think that everything that they're hearing is nonsense and that they know how to do it better. Mm -hmm. um, but the other is the exact opposite of that, which is, oh, wow, I'd never thought about my job this way. And I'm mm -hmm. suddenly looking at my what I do in a completely different light. And to give you a small example, I remember somebody telling me about in the type of analysis that they do, they don't have to think about or think so much about the issue of cognitive bias things like mirror imaging or group mm -hmm. think because they're very focused. It's, it's not something that even factors into their concerns. But then all of a sudden, once they start to realize what kind of problems this can create, they then have to look at their job and think, oh, maybe actually this is something I need to take into account. Maybe, it, maybe the problems that this creates are happening, I've just never noticed them before because I wasn't mm -hmm. looking for them. So it does give you that bigger picture. I absolutely agree with you. I also think it's uh, what you said is a futile, futile debate because it complements each other, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. if, if, especially if you're an analyst, everything that you do is grounded in, you know, academic research principles, right? Yeah. The, the way you grade sources, just to give some people that, that are listening an idea, a literary view. Right. Yeah. Which in intelligence, that's called a background, right? Or context. Right. So the process is the same. The names are different. Right. And I think that to me is very important where I see, because I, I can speak from a practitioner perspective, but also I studied intelligence too. Right. So I can see certain things that I say, hmm, right. As a practitioner, I would have not put emphasis on that. But there are things that I, that I feel in the field are missing also, right? Yeah. Whereby really rigorous research methods are taken into consideration, particularly from other fields yeah. than intelligence, right? So in that regard, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think the world needs a course like yours and a course like ours. And I think intelligence studies itself has a lot of evolution to go through yet. One thing that, that 
slightly troubles me is that we don't have enough communication at times between practitioners and academics. And I think this, I think practitioners tend to look down on academics because they're in the know and academics aren't. And it's, mm-hmm. it is, you know, ultimately, how, how can you know how to do my job? Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think academics look down on practitioners in the sense, well, we understand the bigger picture and you don't. And unfortunately, that breakdown is to the disservice of both sides. What I think practitioners should be doing is essentially the same thing that the police do with criminologists, which is working with academics to try and help resolve the problems that it has, allowing Mm. academics to think differently about how they look at intelligence. Now, that is happening to an extent. The U.S. intelligence community does work a little bit with its academic institutions, but generally science, not so much the social sciences, not so much intelligence mm-hmm. studies. In the UK, there are developments going on that looks like the intelligence community might start to engage more with, with mm-hmm. intelligence studies, which is good. But I think once that starts to happen, we can start then maybe solving problems or looking at problems that would be more useful for practitioners and more mm-hmm. helpful for them. And at the same time, you know, there's, a, there's so much stuff that's closed off to us that we, we don't necessarily need to be closed off. And it kind of leads to academics wasting a lot of time and energy on problems that I don't think are necessarily that interesting. I mean, the classic example is the bloody intelligence cycle. I hate the intelligence cycle with a passion. Mm-hmm. What, what is the technology that, that you are particularly excited about in the, in the field of intelligence studies as well as practitioners? I mean, I'll, it's, it's definitely cyberspace for me, but cyberspace isn't really a technology. It's just a mm-hmm. confluence of technologies. I'm not really sure what excites me. There are certainly things that fascinate me and I'm really looking forward to playing with. Virtual reality, I think, is going to be very interesting from a teaching and training perspective. But how mm-hmm. far that could be pushed is, is open to debate. I think the main driver, the main sort of change is everybody talks about open source. But yeah. It's the impact that information or the information age has had on intelligence in the sense that how much information is produced and Mm -hmm. how many people can now get involved in intelligence. And I do think the biggest challenge, not for the solid intelligence world that we kind of, we kind of think of, which is like the spy agencies, MI6 or the CIA, but for intelligence, broadly speaking, for all of the companies that do intelligence, sometimes they don't even know they're doing intelligence for all Mm -hmm. the private intelligence agencies and so on companies like Grey Dynamics, I think the big challenge for them is going to be the fact that nobody quite understands what the hell they do. And I don't mean yeah. that in the sense of they don't know how to do their jobs. I mm-hmm. mean, intelligence is just becoming so normalized in exactly. the sort of cyber world that there's no, there's no agreed upon best practices. There's, like we, don't, we still mm-hmm. don't even have an agreed definition of intelligence. We don't have an agreed yeah. definition of counterintelligence. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it leads to a world where you do get companies that can sell absolute, I was going to swear then, but nonsensical <laughs> ideas, yeah. stupid ideas, essentially, or mm-hmm. stupid products that realistically mm-hmm. don't work. But because there's yeah. no real agreement on what should or shouldn't be considered good or bad, mm-hmm. there's a lot of room there for errors and mistakes and developments and things. And I think that's going to be the future. It's looking at, yeah. okay, how has intelligence changed beyond these agencies and how do we actually contribute in a way that's going to help everybody else that is now engaged in this fascinating work? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think a, a code of conduct or code of ethics and maybe some standardization of not only how we teach, you know, and what we consider well, intelligence. I can give you an example. There is, I remember seeing a company that's predict insider threats. 
Now that annoyed me on two counts. First of all, the term insider threat is such a certain term because when hackers use insider threats, they're referring to somebody very different to when, say, the FBI refers to insider threats. When the FBI refers mm -hmm. to insider threats, it basically means a spy. When mm -hmm. hackers use that term, they're referring to somebody who might be maliciously or through incompetence, essentially screwing over a network. But mm -hmm. these companies say, okay, what we can do is we can use data processing and all these cool tricks of the trade to predict who in your organization is likely to be an insider threat. Well, that's nonsense. The FBI tried that. They did a massive study into it. And you know what they found? They found that Poxitani Phil, and if you don't know who Poxitani Phil is, he is the gopher. He's a real gopher, and he was also the star of uh, Groundhog Day, yeah. who is picked up once every year to predict the weather, to predict whether yeah. it's going to be a good or a bad winter. Poxitani yeah. Phil was more accurate at predicting the weather than the FBI's spy prediction system. So a golfer can predict the weather better than the FBI can predict spies. And these mm -hmm. companies are going around selling super expensive packages saying, we'll predict who the spy in your agency is. But the problem is when companies don't know who to turn to to ask, is this legitimate? Can this actually work? Mm -hmm. They just think it sounds fantastic and they buy it. So without yeah. a code of conduct, without an actual conversation, without an actual industry that knows what is and isn't viable, this kind of stuff's mm -hmm. going to continue. And I think it will get worse as technology begins to change intelligence even more. So intelligence yeah. studies really need to start getting involved with this, starting to mm -hmm. use its knowledge to actually be useful in that respect. Absolutely. It's a little bit of the wild west out there, right? Yeah. When you look at exactly. like, uh, yeah, the solutions and the technologies that are on offer today. And the one that, that really grinds my gears is AI, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that doesn't even exist, but you know, I, I don't want to be pedantic about it, but the thing is machine learning algorithms are exactly what you just said there, right? They, they, they promise to predict certain behaviors. And the thing is they are becoming dominant in our daily lives Yeah, to an extent. I mean, the, the, the great example is something that, that, that we with great dynamics, as well as, you know, our peers, we talk about this a lot is how random metas algorithms are on Instagram and on Facebook, right? So the same post on Instagram can be banned, but not on Facebook. Yeah. Right. There was like, I mean, YouTube, I think is way better at it, but there was this period whereby everything with the word Nazi or swastikas, right. Was just automatically flagged and banned. Right. So I think that has such a long way to go and it's so arbitrary. There's not even a way to appeal it really. Mm -hmm. Right. In YouTube's case, you can, but in meta, it's just a, a labyrinth of loopholes that you have to get through to find a way out of it. And, and most people just give up, you know, they create a new account and they start um, over from zero. And you can create the best algorithm in the world, but people will mm -hmm. always find a way around it. I mean, my favorite thing was when China had to ban pictures of Winnie the Pooh because people oh, yeah. were using it as code to talk about Obama and G. And it just, it underscores the innovation people have to talk about the things that they want to talk about yeah. despite every best effort to actually censor it. I do wonder how these companies are going to cope though, because you know, considering how many people use, use these applications, they haven't got the resources to censor them, to monitor them in the way that governments expect. And you can only go so far with these algorithms. So I do wonder 
I think I think it's an irresolvable problem. I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future, but it is worrying when you see stuff like this happened recently with populism, with Trump, etc., where a lot of this stuff takes off and a lot of these ideas spread very quickly, and it's very difficult to control misinformation. So mm -hmm. who knows? And I think the heavy-handedness of trying to control backfires. Right? Yeah, absolutely, I, absolutely. I had a discussion the other day that. Somebody said to me, you know, I don't watch the news because it's all negativity, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, the reason for that is because negativity sells. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the organizations are going to sell what sells. It's, it's, they, they don't have, I think maybe they should, but they, they don't think that they have a moral obligation. Mm. right to also show maybe good stories and everything gets conflated right people get more anxiety you know society gets impacted much more heavily by negative news and you know and, and i don't know if there is a connection because i'm not a psychologist or i haven't done this type of research but the amount of negative news that impacts us it wears us down we are not supposed to go through this you get fatigued. I mean, I, I think every, a lot of people experience that with Ukraine. I remember when Russia attacked Ukraine, I mean, every single minute of every single day, I was on Reddit on the news trying to just get every single update on the story. And now I check on it every day, but it's not to the same sort of compulsion because after a while, you just kind of get, you get worn out. You, you can only even take so much. Of it. it does make me feel sorry for people that have to do OSIP for a living, I have to say. Oh, yes. Um, but sometimes you just have to turn the news off. You just yeah, have to shut absolutely. it down and just be like, you know what, I'm, I'm going for a walk. And I, I get, I do feel sorry for the media because I think the media has become a bit of a punching bag to an extent. I saw there was a really interesting interview with Emily Mattis who made the argument that impartiality is really screwing, screwing over the, the BBC in the UK. Mm -hmm. And her argument was, by trying to be impartial, you, have, you essentially have to create a false narrative, which ultimately creates distrust. Because mm -hmm. I, think, I think she said we could... We could find maybe 60 economists who would say Brexit is a really bad idea. But we might find one that says, oh, actually, yeah, it's a good idea. But when it comes to presenting that on the news, you just have one person saying it's good and one person saying it's bad. Mm -hmm. And it creates this misleading impression that you're essentially, saying, you're essentially saying, oh, well, we're not quite sure. And I do feel sorry for the media trying to maintain that impartiality, particularly in an age where we do have a lot of ideas that seem to catch on and seem to be well-liked that aren't very heavily grounded in fact and reality. Mm -hmm. So it's, it must be challenging for journalists, but at the same time, then you get BuzzFeed, the Daily Mail and Fox News. So there's no, yeah. no well, around. well, I mean, to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, and, and I, I think maybe I believe in this also, too, but I think also the media got away with a lot for a long yeah. time. And I think what social media has done. I'm not saying it has leveled the playing field, but it has created an alternative source. Yeah. And where people are just tired of hearing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. They, you know, they go to alternative sources and, 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 and sadly well, those alternative sources are used to spread a lot of misinformation and this I was about to say, but... yeah, you can't bet those sources, can you? I mean, you don't, yeah. at least with certain media, you know that whatever they're reporting is being held to a certain standard. And it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
made with good faith, but you know that yeah. it has been reported to a standard. You don't really get that with alternative sources. And that's the troubling thing for me. I think the internet, particularly and social media, has done a good job of mirroring back whatever these, these news organizations say and holding them to their own hypocrisy. I mean, CNN is the one that particularly annoys me just because I do find CNN's reporting to be quite good at times, but then they mm -hmm. spend so much time giving their uh, personal opinions, their, their sort of, mm -hmm. you see these like analysis sections, and there's more time mm -hmm. spent guessing than there is actually reporting the facts. And that, that yeah. bothers me a little bit, just because I think it makes it look more opinionated than it otherwise needs to be. I mean, it's a very, mm -hmm. it's a very credible news organization with some fantastic journalists, but instead it just looks like a very biased, very liberal left-wing movie piece. Mm -hmm. Which is sad death. because yeah. I think their reporting on Trump hasn't helped them. No, not at all. In that no. perspective. What I always ask people is, what are you reading at the moment? I mean, I know you read for a living, you know, but is there anything that you're reading at the moment that... I, uh, you know, I'm going to tell a terrible secret. I, I don't tend to read books cover to cover very much these days, just because mm -hmm. I don't have the time. By the time I finished working, I usually end up watching popcorn trash. No, I know I should be reading a book, but I'm sorry. I, I haven't got the mental capacity to look at anything yeah. more to do with intelligence. The book that I have been using quite a bit lately is called The Moscow Rules, which was released, I think, maybe two years ago by Tony and Jonah Mendez. And they were they worked in the Office of Technical Services at the CIA. Yep. Uh, Tony yep. Mendez is like the master of disguises. Mm -hmm. And his, his wife, Jonah Mendez, she's done some fantastic documentary videos, which you can access on YouTube, where she talks about yep. all of the stuff she created, uh, the pattern created, and the impact that they had. But it is a truly fascinating book because it makes you realize just how much innovation goes into spying. Like it's only mm. a tiny fraction of, of human intelligence that uses spy yeah. gadgets. But the fraction yeah. that uses it, I mean, the stuff they created is absolutely insane. And there's, a, there's another book as well that I use quite a lot and I've been reading quite a lot lately called Spycraft by Robert mm. Wallace and Robert Wallace and Keith Melton. Keith Melton's an odd chap. He's got what appears to be a mansion or a massive house that's basically been built like Dr. Evil's lair with all kinds of <laughs> hidden compartments and stuff. But Robert Wallace was the head of the Office of Technical Services. So he was essentially the CIA's Q. Mm -hmm. he was, I, I spoke to him briefly by email. And he's a, he seems to be a really nice person. Um, but the book is just truly fascinating. I mean, if you have any mm -hmm. interest in spy gadgets, Moscow rules and spycraft all the way. Yeah, yeah I love it. Love it. I mean, we write about stuff on Great Dynamics that we publish, but I think underreported, yeah. and I think it's one of the coolest. And it, it makes the circle also very, we finish up very nicely because you, you started out saying golden eye, which <laughs> I remember very fondly myself. I think it's, it betrays our ages. But I think what I wanted to say when you mentioned the first book, Moscow Rules, Robert Mendez, he is the guy from Argo with Ben oh, Affleck, oh. right? Yeah, yeah, I believe he is. Yeah, because they hired, didn't they get involved with a team of Hollywood filmmakers yeah. or something? I can't, I can't yeah. quite remember the plot, but yeah. I think that's, I think Ben Affleck plays him in uh, right. in Argo, right? So, so in that regard, for people that are, yeah, for people that are interested, that, that, that rang a bell. And yeah, last thing I wanted to, to ask you, for people that want to get into intelligence, May it be from academia as researchers or practitioners, private sector, government, 
what advice would you give them? Know the skills that you have, because I think, you know, when people apply for jobs, they, they always regurgitate the same skills. It's always the same stuff. It's you know, teamwork, working independently, communication skills, technical skills, whatever. But what you have to remember is that if you're interested in intelligence, intelligence succeeds by, as I just said earlier, it's about looking outside, looking at the world differently. It's about thinking outside the box. And you might think that you are good at stuff that is useless, but actually it might not be useless. I'll give you a couple of examples. I remember there was a story, I think this was reported in Henry Crumpton's book, The Art of Intelligence. And I remember them talking about the idea that somebody applied for their job at the CIA as a secretary. And they're like, well, okay, so what secretary experience do you have? And like, well, I don't have any. Like, okay. What admin experience do you have? Well, I don't have any. It's like, well, what experience do you have? Like, well, I used to hijack planes for a living. Like, oh, okay then. Suddenly this person gets a job in operation. Well, I mean, like even trivial stuff. I remember when I was growing up being told that video games are a total waste of time and that, you know, you should be doing more productive things. And now I'm doing research, finding out that the CIA is running, well, we used to run operations in World of Warcraft, that the military mm -hmm. flies drones using Xbox controllers. Skills yep. that other people would see as a waste of time, the Absolutely. intelligence and military community look at as an asset. They look at it as mm -hmm. something valuable. And I think that's true for a lot of things today. I mean, you give, you give a doddery old white guy a telephone and say, right, okay, you used to work for the CIA. We wanted to find this really obscure video somewhere on the internet. Take them a month. You give it yeah. to an 18 year old, it'll take them five minutes. They'll find yeah. that video there and there. And yeah. these are things like every generation comes with a whole new range of experiences that they Absolutely. don't necessarily see as valuable to a job. But to the yeah. intelligence world, it's valuable. So don't Absolutely. look at look at what you look at what you're good at and think about how that might be useful in any way to an intelligence organization. Absolutely. I mean, for us, for hiring, that's what I look at. I don't really care that much about formal writing experience. You do an assessment and if you do well, right, then I know you can do that part. But what I find interesting is what is your, what is your life experience? What is your background? And yeah. I think gaming gets a bad rep. Both of us are gamers, right? <laughs> I don't have, I don't have as much time as I used to have now, but gaming is problem solving. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I, I cannot come up with one other skill set that's more important to intelligence. I mean, to, to a lot of different jobs, problem solving is, is key, right? Yeah. And, and I think playing games, different games wires your brain in a way that you can see a problem from different angles. And I think that creativity and tenacity for continuing to keep trying it is so important. And, and just as a, as a little side note, because I know we've been talking almost an hour, which was wonderful, is the communication that some non-state, violent non-state groups had using games, right? Yeah. Like World of Warcraft and Call of Duty, where people listen in and communicate through that, which is, yeah, very interesting and which is a little bit of a different side of things. But yeah, I would like to thank you so much, Carl. My As pleasure. always, wonderful to talk to you and very interesting. And I feel I learned more about you today than all the other times that we've spoken. I will remember GoldenEye. Any like closing thoughts, comments? Oh, closing thoughts. That's a careful. I suppose just my, my last thought was just thinking back to what you said about 
skills. I think as well, another important thing is spying isn't just about spies. And actually, mm -hmm. you'd be surprised what kind of jobs exist in the intelligence world. I remember seeing a job for a carpenter at MI6. Mm -hmm. and it, it, any talent can be useful. And if you're good mm -hmm. at something, just give it a shot yeah. and think, like, how can this actually work? But yeah, I mean, like, it, as you say about video games, there was a report released that said GCHQ found diplomats, intelligence officers, embassy drivers, engineers, scientists, the lot, all inside of World of Warcraft and Second Life. So if anybody thinks spying has nothing to do with video games, they're very wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. No, love that. And for everybody listening, guys, if you're, if you want to know more about Kyle, where can they find you? Salford's website should have my profile up shortly. I've only just been given a full-time post, so that needs to be edited. But you can, you're welcome to put my email on your website if you like. Yeah, will do. We'll add that to the show notes. Guys, thank you for listening. Kyle, thank you for, for coming. You can find everything about what we do, Great Dynamics, on greatdynamics.com. You can find a lot about what we do, how we think, maybe more popular culture stuff on social media, particularly Instagram. If you're interested, follow us, comment. If you really like the podcast, please give us a comment and feedback and, and give us a rating. You don't have to give us five stars, but it helps. And yeah, thank you guys for taking the time to listen to what we have to say and for all the support on the website. And, and you guys have been listening to the podcast in, in crazy numbers that I didn't expect. This is only the fourth episode. So I'm really grateful for that. And if you want to join the intelligence sector or private as well as government, and you want to learn more, or you want to speak to like-minded individuals, subscribe to the newsletter or become one of the members on the website and you get first dibs on our course that's coming out. And, and there's probably more of Kyle within that course too. So uh, more input. Thank you guys and have a great day.